Back to the Outback Cast. This is episode thirty-six of the number one podcast um, in my heart and in my mind. This is actually part two of our David Cronenberg cast, the Cronin cast, if you will. And with me today, I got Adam Myros. Hello, Steve. And I got Sean Glennis. Good to be back. Good, good guys. How you doing? It's Halloween. You feeling spooky today? <sighs> This is chill in the air, you know. <laughs> I've My never experienced less enthusiasm enthusiasm from the two of you. So great job, well, well done. I um, I'm staying indoors today. Staying indoors? That's probably a good idea. Uh, my trick or treating is done for the evening. So no, what was what was your costume? Uh, well, I'm a little old for that, Steve. Oh well, I, I thought. I mean, the other day we were talking, and you were really committed to just you know being Victor Salva for Halloween. I don't know what happened <laughs> with that. <laughs> Uh, does anyone even know what Victor Self looks like? Well, I, I mean, you, I, I, I thought you did. I thought it was going to be a couple's costume. You're Victor Salva and Sean's Woody Allen. Oh, I thought you were going to say powder. Oh, no, he, Sean could be powder as well. I thought you were going to say I was taking my nephew out in his tidy whiteies. <laughs> so you guys are making this much worse than, than I ever could. <laughs> oh, good, sweet lord. Okay, so the way this is working is, Sean, you did the first Cronencast with Jake and Jack, and you guys covered sort of the beginning of Cronenberg's career, right? Yeah, me and Jake and Jack went up the hill, and uh, we're about to come down it <laughs> in episode two. Yeah. Okay, well, we're just going gonna to kick things off. We're going to do this chronologically, so I guess... Actually, before we even get into that, we should probably touch on the fact that we're not going to talk about Videodrome. And the reason we're not going to talk about Videodrome is because we already have talked about Videodrome on a podcast, which you can check out on OptimismVaccine.com. So if you're interested and, in our thoughts on that. And? And because I've seen that movie um, a ton of times, and so this was sort of an effort to indoctrinate me to ones that I haven't seen. Sure, Exactly. <laughs> I so, suppose also also worth noting is that we are not covering uh, the bulk of his late period work. So we 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 stop in the nineties here. Yeah, and we kind of even hop around in in that decade as well. We we got a little bit selective, mostly because we want to make this a two parter and not a three parter. Uh, also, a few of his things aren't exactly horror. Uh, I, I we're not going to cover Naked Lunch, which is a great movie that I think everybody should see. Uh, we're not going to cover Spider because I didn't want to watch it again. <laughs> and we're not going to cover M. Butterfly because... Uh, no one wants to watch that. No one wants to watch that. I, I mean, part of horror might be agony, and, and that's a good way to experience <laughs> that. But that's not really I had to what watch that. Do. I had to watch that in some class in um, college, I think, because we read the play. Oh, Jesus. It was kind of <laughs> terrible. I mean, like, imagine like just watching M. Butterfly on your couch is bad enough. Mm-hmm. But having to watch it on like a uh, on a TV screen that's been like rolled into a classroom oh, in the middle of the day, that's pretty rough. Good times, yeah. I've, it used to be very difficult to find. I've actually never seen M Butterfly because it was uh, out of print for quite some time. I uh, gee, I wonder why. <laughs> it should be. It kind of reminds me of I, I don't know if if this is like a nationwide theater thing, but 
at the theater that I go to, they sometimes do like special events. So they'll do like, you know, like riff tracks and stuff like that. But one of the other things they do is they have like broadcasts of like the ballet and shit. So it's just like, come see the Nutcracker Suite here at Marcus Theaters. And it, it but, <laughs> and that's, that's what M. Butterfly is, except surprise, it's David Cronenberg. So, yeah. Not great. Yeah, like those Fathom Events things. Mm-hmm. There you go. Yeah, they showed that uh, Star Trek The Next Generation episode like last year. I was like, why in the hell is this happening? It's a, it's a fun event, man. Fun. Lots of fun. Yeah, real fun. Speaking of Picard. fun. Uh, let's talk about The Dead Zone. Shall we? So this is actually kind of a weird place to start because it's a little bit of an outlier in Cronenberg's sort of body of work. It doesn't necessarily feel entirely like a Cronenberg film during this period or, or, you know, sort of in line with his earlier work. You're not getting the wacky body horror stuff. Uh, It's more of a thriller than a horror movie, really. Yeah, and it's also an adaptation of a Stephen King story. So Cronenberg didn't really have a hand in that either. Which right, and and perhaps most notably at this stage, he didn't write the screenplay or have any hand in that at all. Yeah, which I think he did for everything up to this, right? That is correct. Yeah, there we go. See, we're learning things already. Sean, have have you seen the Dead Zone before? Was this something you're familiar with? Uh, I was. I was not familiar. This was my first experience with The Dead Zone. Um, I knew it was Stephen King, but, um, I mean, if you would have asked me before, like, if you would have asked me, like, two months ago what The Dead Zone was, I would have guessed it was, uh, like, a TV series or something, And which is kind of apropos because it does feel like a TV movie to me. Mm-hmm. Well, well, it is, in fact, a TV series as well, starring Anthony Michael Hall. Oh, God, I was, about to say, I was about to say it had Rick Schroeder in it, but thank God you saved me there. <laughs> same, it's too bad it wasn't, um, it, it too bad, too bad it, it wasn't starring Anthony Clark. Yeah, well, then it would have gone for 200 episodes. Then it would have been called Yes, Dear Zone. <laughs> okay, thank oh, you. Lord. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, well, and it's... It's interesting that you say it's kind of like a TV movie, too, because I've seen a little bit of the TV series, and this movie, the way it's structured, it almost feels like a like a long TV pilot in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. It's It's got a lot of ideas and a lot of exposition, and it tries to stuff quite a bit into a pretty short runtime. And I think that's why I've, I've struggled with this movie. I saw it years ago. Actually, I think I watched it with Myra. It was like a decade ago. And Sounds about right. Yeah, I, it just sort of left me feeling cold. Like, I didn't take away a lot from it. I didn't love it. I didn't hate it. It was just like, well, there it is. It's a Cronenberg movie. But compared to everything else he was doing around that time, it, it just, I don't know, it struck me as an anomaly in that it wasn't particularly thrilling in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, uh, that's the general feeling I got. And, <clears throat> yeah, it does feel like a TV pilot. Like, it, it feels like something that, like, if it was updated, uh, it feels like uh, something AMC would throw up for uh, a pilot and then it would get canceled um pretty quickly because it's uh, yeah you're right it doesn't go like one way or the other it doesn't like thrill me it doesn't really um it doesn't have an effect on me it's just it's just really boring actually i i think i'm a little softer on it than the two of you i mean i it's it's not a favor of mine certainly but i think there's some great craft in the film. I, I certainly don't get a very TV, especially 80s TV feel from it. I think it's a very well-constructed uh, visually, not so much narratively. It's it's a 
that I think that feel comes from the way the narrative is is structured, which is very uneven. Like it's it's very difficult to parse how much time is supposed to be passing over the course of the film beyond the initial five year coma. Uh, it seems as if you know he's moving from place to place, and and a couple of years are passing here and there, but then. I guess not because it's still in the middle of this election and mm. the baby is still a baby. And But it just feels like you're supposed to be kind of like it's so episodic that it's like, oh, and then this happened. And it's almost like cut to two years later. But I, I guess it's like cut to two weeks later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very conceit driven, uh, almost to a fault at times. I would agree. It does have... Uh, I'll, the third act is is very rushed as well. Like it, it mm-hmm. feels like they could have certainly pared down on one of the episodes. Perhaps, uh, well, I would say the weakest element would be uh, Cuff's favorite ice breaking hockey practice. That's right. Uh, <laughs> the ice <laughs> is gonna break. The ice. It feels as if that whole break. sequence was unnecessary in the narrative, and uh, they probably could have devoted a little more time than like. 15 minutes to uh, him killing the Antichrist or whatever the hell was going on there. Uh, you're talking about Martin Sheen? Yep. Donald Trump? The predictions yeah. being made? <laughs> it was quite, it was quite um, potent watching, watching that this year. Yeah, it was a good time. If you're going to watch The Dead Zone, I suppose right now is the time to watch it. Yeah, Martin Sheen's character is kind of weird because... I, I like the character itself, but it really feels kind of shoehorned into the film as a whole. Does that does that make sense? Yeah. I just I, I I don't know. Again, like the whole thing feels really really overstuffed to me. And then the other problem that I have with it too is just the whole gimmick of the movie. I'm sure it was a little bit more novel at the time, but now how many television shows and movies have been made that are basically that? You know? Oh. I can tell how how and when you're going to die and yada yada and it, and after all that yeah, it's just, it feels I mean, tired to me. It it all feels tired after um, the uh, Angelina Jolie vehicle um, life or something like it, where Tony Shalhoub <laughs> uh, predicts predicts uh, when she's going to die. Yeah, the the titular monk. That's the ultimate case that he solved. Myra, yeah, yeah it, that's 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 a good point though. Um, there, it just does seem like every like fourth prestige tv show pilot is about some sort of like esp spinoff like this sure i uh i think it's visually what gets by for me and i mean the acting is okay i I don't really love christopher walken you know in a serious lead role like this he's he's, i mean he does a lot better in deer hunter than he does here to me it's just like Mm. especially kind of looking forward Yes, yeah, yeah, you got it. Uh, especially when you surround him with like James Woods and Goldblum in the the movies immediately preceding and following it. It's just like kind of a it's a just their performance. He's not very magnetic. No. Yeah, what, one of the things I took away from it most is that um like uh so this is the fifth one that I had watched and his movies are so much about like things and stuff like embodied by people like they're they're about people hosting often terrible phenomena about viruses parasites abilities like these are all things that are manifesting through the uh, main subjects or the peripheral characters and then the the main subjects and i think that's really important to think about for 
anyone, I guess, considering his films or, or a good way to catalog um, the the ones that we're looking at is uh, they're not about outward forces as much as the medium that he's working with is people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it feels not at all Cronenbergian uh, narratively, and except for perhaps the Wee Zack character. I guess that's how he introduces himself for no reason. Hey, you can call me Wee Zack. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's he, he hints at these sort of Cronenbergian themes about, oh, you may have developed, uh, maybe experiencing something that no one has experienced before. Or, or he's basically questioning whether he's a fraud or has developed this ESP, but it, he phrases it in such a bizarre Cronenbergian fashion and the fact that he kind of wants him to go to go away with him and study him and and you feel like if Cronenberg had written this script that that's precisely what would have happened but mm-hmm. he did not instead it was a kind of meandering from here to there as he solved various mysteries and it, it yeah it's not great it's not bad i don't think either i think it's mm-hmm. i think if i if i didn't come into it with the weight of uh Cronenberg and my expectations heightened to that degree I would quite like this film. I could see why it was popular at the time and had kind of a lasting cultural impact. I can remember, you know, early 90s SNL skits that parodied this. So, sure. uh, yeah. Steve, has this grown um, in your uh, mind since you first saw it? No, I, I might actually like it less now, to be honest. I mean, the one thing I will say about it is, you know, it's probably still a top, three Stephen King adaptation. So it's got that going mm-hmm. <laughs> for whatever that's worth. But yeah, I it just, does have a couple of excellent sequences. You got to grant it that. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's got its moments. And I, I think you can, you can find moments in any of Cronenberg mo- movies, even the ones I don't like. Like, I'm sure if I watch spider again, because I, I don't know, I was trapped in some hellscape where I was forced to sit in a room and watch it. I would probably find two or three things that I really liked about it. There's always something, but just on the whole, this doesn't this doesn't work as well for me. Like I love Cronenberg when he's weird as shit and he's sort of challenging me as a viewer, and this really feels like maybe one of his most straightforward movies, with the exception of his newer work. So you know maybe a good way to look at the Dead Zone is is if you're a fan of like post two thousands Cronenberg twenty first century Cronenberg you might really like the dead zone. So if you're into Or like if you like watching the Twilight Zone in color. That that is that is a all yeah, that would work too. It had I, I think that like the initial manifestation of his powers where he sees uh where he's basically in the burning house. I thought that was very well done, a very interesting uh scene. Hmm. And I, I really liked that. And there was also uh, the other sequence that really stuck out to me in the film is when he is uh, chasing the after the serial killer in that house. It, it's not a Cronenbergian scene, especially at all. It almost reminds me more of a De Palma or someone of that nature because it's it's really kind of leaning on the the gel filters and the Jalo uh, homage, which is not Cronenberg's uh, usual bag of tricks at all. But I found that to be a quite disturbing scene where the man just uh, kills himself with a pair of scissors. Yeah. <laughs> like I said, it, it's, yeah. it certainly has its moments. It's just, you know, overall, if, if I'm telling someone, Hey, sit down, you got to watch all this Cronenberg. That's, that's not in my top five, probably. 
One thing I did uh, think was interesting um, is that Brooke Adams was in it, and um, who was the ingenue of uh, Days of Heaven. And um, in Rabid, uh, as we talked about in episode one um, of this Cronin cast, Cronenberg uh, originally wanted to cast uh, Sissy Spacek, which was the ingenue of Badlands both Terrence Malick movies. So I wonder if he, if that's just like a coincidence or if he was, if he has some sort of affinity for, for Terrence Malick movies in general. I mean, obviously it doesn't, it's not transposed on his work, but, um, I don't know, just sort of a nerdy tidbit. Sure. Sure. Uh, I think what this is, is, is Cronenberg transitioning into Hollywood. You know, it's, uh, Post Videodrome, which I suppose is his Hollywood debut to an extent, but I can't imagine it was a wide release. <laughs> and this is him kind of, it feels like he's trying to get a little budget and showing people what he can do without uh, being too wild and crazy, which is certainly among his more subdued works. Yeah. Well, Did thankfully. he do Wild and Crazy Kids? Uh, yeah, yeah. Jesus, that's a that's a '90s throwback reference. Good job, Sean. <laughs> All right, well, let's move on because I don't want to talk about the Dead Zone anymore. I'm over it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> let's get out of. This I just zone. yeah. Let's let's get out of this zone. Let's get into a better zone, a zone that I'm 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 very happy to be in. Myros, I think this is this like your favorite movie, one of your favorite movies, The Fly. Uh, it is. It's it's among my. Uh I think it's my second favorite movie of all time, I'd call it. So. Damn. Uh, we are talking, of course, about uh, The Fly, uh, Jeff Goldblum, Gina Davis, uh, adaptation of the Vincent Price classic. But this is certainly uh, goes in a very different uh, direction from that film. Yeah, well, and it, sort of, it sort of fits into the same mold as The Thing, which I think came out, what, like three years before this, probably, where you take this kind of schlocky 1950s horror movie and then you, you turn it into something completely different. Like, uh, other than a name and some very basic characteristics, I don't think Cronenberg's uh, The Fly really shares a lot with the 1950s version. <laughs> No, certainly not. It's uh, I guess you could take like a sort of mad science bent, and you know what could technology do to us all? But yeah, other than that sort of basic, again, Twilight Zone conceit, it's uh, certainly a different animal. Yeah, and one thing that I I really like about The Fly, and I, I don't think it's my favorite Cronenberg movie, but I absolutely love it. Um, it's a great example of. All these things in Cronenberg's career sort of converging at the same time. So he's got a budget, which is nice because obviously in his early work he was he wasn't really working with one of those. Um, he's back on the on the body horror stuff, which is where he excels, uh, and he's also got a wide release, so people actually get to see <laughs> you know his his creative genius in an actual theater as opposed to God knows where you went to see Videodrome. So it's got a strong narrative. It's got all the body horror stuff, and people actually got to see it, which is fucking wonderful as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> but yeah, this is this is probably you could argue this is the high point of his career when all those things sort of come together for him. I would argue that. Uh, I'll get into it a little more, but I'm kind of wondering what Sean's impression was on this one. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, I had um, never seen this before. Like, this was um, 
something where I had seen like bits and pieces um, on like TBS or I guess probably not TBS because it's not very funny, but um, on TNT and whatever, like USA, like growing up, um, just, just like bits and pieces, but mostly like the end or and just like weird. Um, I would just like sort of peek my head in on like part of the transformation and just like kind of know that that's a part of it, but not, not really sit down and watch it or, or think much about it. <clears throat> so I knew like a certain aesthetic about it, but, um, this is my first time sitting down to it. And, um, I was, I was really taken aback by it. I thought this was the most like, um, visceral of his in this group that we're watching. And, um, it was, it's weird. Cause like, uh, like I mentioned, I thought the dead zone was really like conceit driven to a fault like sort of following it to its more like straightforward and, and sort of boring end. Um, this was the fly is like very conceit driven, but it, it, he just like, he just, it just seems to grow out of every, um, like every crack. It just like in that conceit is just growing with so much like emotional resonance. Um, and Jeff Goldblum, um, his performance and, and just like the way that he's de- delivering some of these lines are just like extremely vulnerable, uh, which is, is I guess I had only seen bits of that, um, that mix of um, good concept and emotional resonance in, in um, some of the, the brood. But um, here it really felt uh, like potent the whole way through. Um, yeah, I, I, I expected a lot uh, coming in just because of um, – what Myos had talked about it, and I definitely wasn't. Um, I wasn't let down. I sort of stopped taking notes on this movie immediately, just because I wanted to to experience it. Yeah, I, uh, I actually have a funny story about when I sat down to watch this again. I, I've seen this movie a bunch, but I, I don't think I've watched it in probably like three or four years. And I put it on when Amanda got home from work, and I had never watched this movie with her before. And she's like, oh, The Fly. I used to watch this all the time when I was a kid. And I was like, what? <laughs> and apparently, at her house, there was a copy of Carrie and a copy of The Fly on VHS. And her and her sister just watched them, like, nonstop on a loop. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you know, if, uh, if, if you ever witness any, you know, like, uh, just psychosis on the part of Amanda, I, that's probably why. Can you imagine, like, you're eight years old and you sit down and watch The Fly? <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think of, like, <clears throat> like classical literature um, or other examples, like other movies where... Um, <clears throat> the 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 concept works that way where it's just like if you see it and you're not um i guess like adult or, or like you're not like super educated or anything like that it just it just plays to like an a teen audience as this weird albeit like really well done um horror sci-fi thing um and then as you you could grow with it you know it's mm-hmm. it's something that you could revisit um uh, when you get older and just sort of like see exactly what he's doing there mm-hmm. um and and sort of parse out a lot of a lot of the um emotional points yeah and, which, and i think it's really yeah oh. it's really nice to, to come across a piece like that um whether i've seen it before or not just just you know it works on multiple levels mm-hmm and I'll I, say I, she was a tougher kid than I was. That's for damn sure. I know. I wouldn't have watched that when I was a kid. Jesus Christ. Maybe has some, some imagery in it. I, I think I probably watched – I think I watched parts of it for the first time when I was probably about 12 or so. And mm-hmm. I, I, That, that uh, Brundle fly coming through the uh, 
glass bricks. That that was uh, that one got me. That one yeah. got me a bit, even at the an older age. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the reason that it, it works, even if you're not familiar with Cronenberg, or if you're you know a little bit younger or something like that, and it, it still works if you're older too. It's such a timeless movie because the central story, when you look at it, it's it's so basic. And it's just executed yeah. flawlessly. I mean, this movie has a lot in common with King Kong, really, in a lot of ways. And on top well, of that... certainly Frankenstein as well. Yeah, Frankenstein as well. Oh, yeah. Just all, all this classic horror. And then just the idea of this debilitating disease slowly taking over someone. And there's, there's really nothing you can do. He's just, he's just stuck. And he has to experience what he's experiencing. And he has no idea what the end result is going to be. And, and that's terrifying. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and Frankenstein's a perfect example of what I was talking about, uh, where you can extrapolate upon like metaphors and allegorical um, parts of it uh, as you get older, but it still works uh, on on a simpler level. But yeah, I I think it also works on that level too because <clears throat> um, this has to be like the best performance in a Cronenberg movie, at least of uh, up to this point. Like, I mean, I I love James Woods in Videodrome, but um, it, it's it's not, all, not only is it really good, but I, I mentioned how vulnerable Jeff Goldblum is here, and, and that sort of can speak to, to anyone. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah, I don't think James Woods was asked to do nearly as much as Goldblum was in The Fly. The Fly is, is his movie, uh, and he has to carry it, and he does with flying colors. It's just... Uh, fly yeah. in colors. Um, <clears throat> so, Myros, why is this one of your favorite movies? This is one of my favorite movies because I don't know. We had this sort of little talk in our in our private conversations about like why we read some stupid article about why would anyone subject themselves to horror and what's the point of it and who wants to be scared and and this movie exemplifies what I love about horror. I'd say this and and The Brood more than any of Cronenberg's other work. It, it's just this thing that exists uh that couldn't exist without the genre it's a a man kind of exploring certain aspects of himself and and dealing with death or divorce or psychology or or whatever and he he manifests that on the screen in such a distressing way that you rarely see before cronenberg i mean you you could say like the possession by zulowski or i mean there's a there's a few other examples where you'll see something like that but this is the fly sticks out for me because it's when he marries that emotional resonance with his very sort of disgusting and clinical mm-hmm. sort of lens that it becomes something truly magnificent for me. Like I can I can see David Cronenberg in this movie. I don't know that I could say that for even something as masterful as Videodrome. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, to, to either of you, what do you think? Like, what do you get from what he's going through? Like, what are these? How do these emotional resonance like manifest into issues or ideas for either of you? Man, well, that's a, that's a th- heavy one. <laughs> <laughs> I think Cronenberg himself has has stated that the film was was about death and the loss of of love and a loved one and uh, what that's the pain of going through that. And I mean, it was, it was kind of subverted into an AIDS centric message by the public at the time, just because it was such a prominent health crisis. But yeah, you can, you can certainly see this sort of 
aging, like it's almost like rapid aging and degeneration in in Goldblum's character uh, Brundle as he, yeah, he just withers into mush, and, mm-hmm. and it, it, you can see the pain. And Gina Davis should not be underestimated in this movie, by the way. Yeah. She's also totally fantastic, and and really sells this sort of what could be a very hollow love affair because it, it's not exactly given a ton of screen time. It kind of develops. It's a very secondary plot that becomes the emotional core of the film. But it's, uh, yeah, for me, I, I can absolutely envision his intent, and uh, that is something that's difficult to pull off. Yeah, I, I think almost anyone can sort of relate to the idea of, you know, a, a, the pain that's associated with a loved one dying. But normally, you know, like if, if your grand, if your grandpa gets cancer or something and then you watch him slowly deteriorate over, you know, the course of maybe months or, you know, years or whatever it is, you have a, you have a little bit more time in between a little breathing room to sort of come to terms with that. And, you know, you just, you understand that as people age, this is what happens and it's inevitable. And, you know, it, it, it still hurts, but you can sort of logically figure out how to deal with it on an emotional level. Whereas with something like this, it takes that, that fear and that sadness and all that pain and anguish. But like you said, it accelerates it. So we watch these two people who love each other and then you just have to watch Jeff Goldblum completely deteriorate into something just not like his character at all by the end. And then to the point where he's just a ball of mush that's melded with a machine. Yeah, and that's a good segue into what I was thinking about and, and um, uh, how um, that vulnerability is sort of um, emphasized because he has so much like bravado and like machismo when he's when he first like transforms or, you know, he first goes through the experiment and he's sort of like enlivened and uh, can do whatever he wants kind of thing, like physically. Um, and then slowly starts going through these uh you know cosmetic um deteriorations and he's in denial about um uh what gina davis is saying that he's doing like turning into um in in both physical form and um emotional form and he has to come to terms with that hubris uh as he quickly deteriorates and um that really that that that's contrast between um that uh sadness like right after sort of like peaking you know this um um classic uh oh what's the guy who flew too close to the sun icarus Icarus. yeah yeah it's sort of like that classic icarus thing um and watching him go through that is is um yeah yeah it it could be it's one thing to just watch a guy like go through stuff and get sad you Mm -hmm. know well Um, we're yeah, I mean, we're spending so much time with Goldblum's POV that it's it's almost like it's almost like a life cycle for him where he's young and thinks he'll live forever and thinks he's a Superman and then mm-hmm. comes to grips with his own decay and and death, you know, inevitable death. And I I think another way to view it is it's just as easy to look at this as sort of a an emotional death, like the death of the relationship in a. In a in as that you could look at it as uh, mm-hmm. actual death. In you know she's kind of becomes increasingly repulsed by him and his possessiveness and megalomania, and he's doing everything he can to possess her and uh, you know just make it work and make them a family again. And it's it's just you could see almost the seeds of again a sort of relationship and ending in divorce and the, just kind of an ugly 
weighed on that front as well. I mean, I think this, this, that's an interpretation that lends itself to the film as well. Yeah, it, it really does do a great job of, I don't know, sort of exploring a, a toxic relationship. Like, you have these two people, and then, like you said, she becomes repulsed by him. And then, at the very end, what is he trying to do? He's literally trying to prevent her from have, having an abortion with his mutant baby. And then he's trying to literally fuse her and the unborn child into his own DNA. And I think you see that a lot with people who are in you know, abusive or, to- or toxic relationships where the abuser, mm-hmm. uh, their reaction to someone not wanting to be with them is to pull them as close as possible. And uh, yeah, that's, that's tough to watch, but it's masterfully done. Yeah, that's a good point. I really love that this uh, movie made about four times its budget uh, worldwide while being one of the most difficult to watch films uh you'll ever see <laughs> yeah I, I and god you gotta wonder i mean i just i i can't even think about how audiences would have reacted to this like upon seeing it I, I wish there was just like some television news footage or something from 1986 that i could go back and watch of people reacting to this movie yeah that's something i was thinking about while watching it is trying I was, I was trying to think about what it would have been like to see um as like a box office smash uh i guess um it's, it's really bizarre um but i will say um that this is by far the best of the first six in this series oh yeah oh, i would agree certainly as much as I love the brood, the fly is another level. It's just uh, to me, it's the pinnacle of his work. Absolutely. All right, Myros, you got any? Uh, you got any last thoughts? Or Sean, you got any last thoughts on the fly? Mm-mm. All right. See the fly. My, yeah. Watch. The, what are, what are you the, doing? If you're listening to this, watch the goddamn fly, or just watch yeah. the fly. I don't know if the goddamn fly is another. That, that might be a different <laughs> movie altogether. <laughs> I just wish uh, this sort of movie could exist today. Mm-hmm. Oh, and PSA: Don't watch the fly too. Man, it's got some good effects. That's, <laughs> That's about, about it. it, yeah. That's all it's got going. Yeah, it is kind of weird that we haven't gotten anything like this before. Like, people, I think they have, they've tried to do similar things. Like, I, I feel like I've seen movies that attempt to do the, the, the stuff that The Fly is trying to do, but never as successfully. Yeah, the most like uh, similar thing I can think of is like a, like a handicap, like paraplegic type movie or something like that. Yeah, I <laughs> like like the theory of everything. It's just like the fly, right? Oh yeah, <laughs> um, Brit, uh, Oscar Austin Powers. Something. Yeah, like that. I just yeah again to go back to the thought of uh, man. I wish like this keeps me coming back to horror movies is because for every ten bad ones you see, you might see something in the vein of this and. I'm sorry, 10 to 1 is a terrible ratio. More like 100 to 1, somewhere in there. <laughs> uh, but you're, I'm I was going to say, you're giving, you're giving horror movies good odds here. <laughs> right, yeah. I, you're always searching. It's disappointing because nothing is this anymore. You know, you, you're waiting. Every time I go see something like The Babadook or It Follows, I, I'm like expecting to get my socks knocked off. I'm waiting for the next fly, and it, it just never happens. <laughs> and if I could have been a fly on the wall during this, though. Oh Jesus! All right, hey, let's let's talk about Dead Ringers, man. Let's do it. First off, I just want to say here's here's our here's our plug of the week. I uh, I just got the Scream Factory Blu-ray of Dead Ringers, which I think is the first time it's ever been on 
Blu-ray. And I know the the Criterion DVD has been out of print for God knows how long, but it is just gorgeous. Like the the presentation is unbelievable. It it looks amazing. So if you get a chance, watch that. It's good stuff. But yeah, this is a, definitely a big departure from The Fly. It, it has a few similar themes, but I think in terms of tone and and visuals, it's almost jarringly different from the fly especially watching them back to back the way that i did yeah i um in terms of being visually different it it struck me um as maybe the bridge to like the next uh step of in his career mm-hmm. um it, just because it's markedly different from anything that that precedes it and you know i've seen some of his later stuff and and just visually speaking and, and maybe even going away from uh, body horror, uh, for the most part, it just, yeah, it, it seemed like, um, sort of a different step on the ladder for him. Sure. Yeah. There's only like, I think there's only really one body horror scene in the entire movie. Yeah. Uh, the, yeah. the dream sequence with the umbilical cord biting. Mm. Oh, he, he makes it work. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's <laughs> a lot of unseen body horrors going on and that is somehow just as effective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is a movie, if, if you haven't seen it, it's, it follows two twins who are it gynecologists, follows. and they're both played by Jeremy Irons. And we were talking about great Cronenberg performances, and I think Jeff Goldblum, absolutely up there, but holy shit, Jeremy Irons is amazing in this movie. And just yeah. thinking about like just the craft of filmmaking and, and acting and all of that, like, I don't even know how you do what he did. You know, there's there's no CGI, no whiz bang bullshit here, and and just the performance that he gives. Can you imagine like shooting this movie out of sequence and just trying to get in your head which one of the two brothers you are? When even as an audience member, we don't always know which brother is on screen. You know. Well, I, yeah, I would have been a bit more puzzled if I hadn't watched the um, extra features on Parent Trap with Lindsay Lohan. Oh, that's how they do it. <laughs> A lot of parallels between those two movies, let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, those Lohan twins were distinct and nuanced characters. <laughs> Sean, what, what was your major your major takeaway from this movie? I know you were watching it with Sophie, and Sophie was not having it. Yeah, it wasn't exactly a Sophie's choice to watch this. Um, <laughs> uh, what is my main takeaway? I don't know. It, that, that it seems... Um, so if The Fly is like sort of his, his most visceral movie, uh, or at least effectively visceral, um, this is definitely um, his most cerebral. Um, and, and it makes sense that he would take away that body horror element for the most part, uh, or not take it away like it's a deliberate decision, but it makes sense that his most cerebral movie to date – I mean, I guess Videodrome's pretty cerebral, but um, – even even this might top it in, in that department. It makes sense that it wouldn't that it would sort of um, exclude body horror for the sake of just like mind games and like uh, Myro said, like sort of off camera body horror. Yeah, this is oh god. Yeah, it's it's really it's deeply deeply disturbing and incredibly cerebral, and it's also weird too because it's based on a true story like these they're actually two twin gynecologist doctors who uh were found like dead from drug overdoses in their uh, luxury apartment like this is this is a real thing i mean obviously not you know nobody's designing mutant vagina tools or anything in real life <laughs> that i know of 
Uh, but wait, just wait. My Kickstarter launches next week. Uh, but other than that, it's just it's it's what, really tough to swallow. What material? What, what uh, fabric are you going for here? I'm using surgical steel. They must be perfect. The question is: uh, Are you going to market them as tools for operating on mutated? cervixes or whatever the hell it was or are you going to uh, market them as tools for separating Siamese twins or modern art hey either way I mean that's that's the great thing about the tools they use in uh, dead ringers is really it works both ways you know you got a, you got some Siamese twins you want to separate go right ahead you got a mutant <laughs> cervix sure we got your tool oh um, but you, you you mentioned any uh, going back to sort of the visual um, uh, presentation. Um, I enjoy on one hand how like uh, late eighties yuppie this is. Like oh yeah, it's ba- it's basically like uh, if the the neighbors from um, if the dude neighbor in uh, a Christmas vacation um, lived with his twin brother instead of Elaine Bennis. <laughs> that's that's a good way of putting it. It does have a distinctly. 80s yeah yuptastic look to it and which is terrible decor <laughs> yeah which really really bad <laughs> and it's also just it's weird because going from the fly where it's it's a very intimate almost personal movie because of of how much time we spend with jeff goldblum sort of alone going through his transformation whereas this movie it feels really like cold and distant and clinical Mm-hmm. So it, it was it was very jarring for me going from from one to the other, but it works because I, I think the major my major takeaway at least from this movie is just um, this idea of of being in a relationship with someone and not knowing how to be yourself, you know, and and that's kind of what both Jeremy Irons characters, the two brothers, struggle with is they don't have distinct identities; they both just sort of feed off of each other. And for the most part, they they channel that into – I can't exactly say positive things because they do terrible things to women, but they channel it into things that are beneficial to them. Mm-hmm. And then when that sort <laughs> yeah. of when, – when things <laughs> sort of go out of sync. Very clear <laughs> distinction there. Very clear distinction. Yeah, I got I to gotta make sure I say that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so just the, the whole like woman swapping thing and, and, and then – just their reaction to it like it's so especially for ellie the ellie and elliot and beverly right uh ellie and bevy ellie and bevy those are the names of my uh twin dachshunds as well i knew it <laughs> they they don't see anything wrong really with what they're doing you know they, they swap all the time like oh i'll do the research here and you do the presentation and you do this thing for me you do this thing for me you have sex with this woman, and then I'll have sex with this woman. Like, they share everything, and there's nothing just inherently wrong with that to them. Yeah, it's almost, like, efficient for them. Yeah. Well, and at one point, um, the, the romantic lead even asks them, oh, what, what, is, what is her name again? I forget. Uh, the, the French actress that they're, they're dating in the movie. Genevieve. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> she goes, she finds out that they've both been sleeping with her. And Elliot is just like, what's the big deal? And and Beverly's clearly embarrassed. But then she goes, well, would well, you guys sleep in the same bed too? And then Elliot's like, no. But it, it, it's like, well, that's that's a completely reasonable question to ask these two right. people. Yeah. Um, and the ta- the tagline, I think, is kind of interesting for this movie. It's, called, it's two bodies, two minds, one soul. Ooh. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah. Jeremy Irons. Uh, <laughs> this this movie is kind of difficult to discuss. It's just such a strange and uh, really disturbing film. Uh, I, I think, for my money, it's probably the hardest Cronenberg uh, film to, to get through. Uh, and that's not an insult. I also think it's one of his very best works. It's just... It, it's very draining. It's it's such a difficult movie. Uh, so what, but, what do you find so rewarding about it? I I find everything rewarding about it almost. I mean, again, as as uncomfortable as it can be, it's a very emotionally rich movie to an extent. Uh, again, Irons gives one of, in my opinion, one of the best performances you'll ever see in a film, and uh, it's just. I it's unlike anything I've ever seen, and uh, I really appreciate it. Every time I see it, I'll get something a little more out of it. But it's got such an interesting view of relationships. Uh, man, I I love this movie. It's sure. Well, it's, and it's, it's, it's about like this sort of parasitic relationship, and uh, we'd be they beneficial parasites, or eventually becoming detrimental. And it's interesting that you use that word parasites because of. Cronenberg's canon um, being like, you know, in Shivers, you know, uh, trafficking in literal parasites. Yeah. And now, like I said, this being like his most cerebral movie, maybe today, arguably, I guess, um, to have that be a, uh, you know, uh, figurative parasite. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it it is interesting comparing it to, like you said, like Shivers and Rabbit, where these things manifest as like actual physical manifestations, whether it's a, you know, creepy vampire vagina armpit or like parasites and Shivers. But yeah, it, it works both ways. And I think mm -hmm. the thing that really makes this movie successful for me is, you're right, it, it's really difficult to watch, especially towards the end, because you realize that uh, Beverly is he's spiraling out of control and his his brother is doing everything he can to prop him up but it's it's not enough and eventually Beverly just starts to drag him down and you know it's inevitable you know once it starts happening once Elliot starts popping pills once he starts to slip up you know that there's no recovering from that <laughs> and then there's just god haunting yeah. haunting ending the ending is just well, terrifying and uh, like uh, the idea that you know that he's not going to uh, uh, not going to get re recover from it, uh, um, the danger is that you know that he's trafficking in like a position that is so detrimental, like so uh, always verging. You know, as a gynecologist, like always verging on like having this ability to totally like ruin someone's lives. Mm -hmm. And so there's like the, you're always on this precipice of like, what is he going to do? Um, with you know, especially you know once the drug addiction starts to take hold and blah, blah, blah. Um, but uh, one thing that I enjoyed about it was um, the exam suits that they wear. Oh, those uh, red things? Yeah. Yeah, it's like a meeting of the occult or something. Yeah, um, it, it looks like uh, like a Star Wars character mixed with Eyes Wide Shut. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was saying. It's very Eyes Wide Shutty, but uh, with clothes. And... Um, uh, you just sort of like accept this world. Um, you don't, you know, you don't look for like, um, explanations. Um, no, and maybe that, maybe part of that is just knowing Cronenberg. Like I can't imagine seeing this movie in 1988, um, 
and not having sort of like that context. Uh, it would be extremely bizarre, I would, I would think. But you just sort of like accept that this is um, a bit surreal and very, uh, like I said, dangerous. Uh, that, mm-hmm. that color red is, isn't like, you know, lustful passion or anything like that there. It's just like very, um, I don't know. I keep using the word word visceral, but but it's true. Yes, it that's just, what it is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. It's just it's this code of this is terrifying. Imagine going into surgery with a doctor dressed in these blood red scrubs from head to toe. It's just such a distressing <laughs> image. Like it's that it's whole pretty sequence rough. where he wheels yeah, out his special tools is just like, oh my god. <laughs> Oh yeah, God. I guess, and 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 you know, uh, the, us three um, have never, uh, you know, been examined by a gynecologist, so it's like frightening to us um, as men. I and I, I can't imagine uh, as Steve mentioned, uh, Sophie couldn't watch it um, all the way through, and yeah, it, it's perhaps telling. Yeah, Amanda was squirming because <laughs> was she? Yeah, well, and she said like, especially there's there's a scene where. Well, er- early on in the movie, one of the brothers gets an award, and it's like this weird, like <laughs> golden clamp thing. I don't know what it is. And the under clamp yeah, or whatever. Once once Beverly starts losing his mind, essentially, he starts taking apart this statue and and turning it into whatever devices they use in the examination room. And there's this part where there's a woman in the examination chair at the gynecologist's office. And she's, you know, strapped up and can't move and in the stirrups and everything. And he takes this repurposed trophy and starts using it as an actual tool. And she's, like, in physical pain. And then he basically accuses her of having, like, a, a messed up vagina because she fucks dogs. And he gets very, very aggressive. Like, he's he's physically calm, but just his voice, the, the way that he says things to her is horrifying and amanda was practically like squirming onto the floor because she said like it's <laughs> you you literally cannot be more vulnerable than when you're sure. at the gynecologist in that position it's just so she's like yeah that's like the most terrifying thing imaginable and and there's nothing like more condescending than than a doctor like being pissed that you're telling him that you're in pain oh sure yeah it's yeah he asks if she has sex with a labrador retriever (laughs) yeah yeah there you go it's just like my god this is yeah it's just such a tough movie to get through but it's i think it rewards you at every turn it's just man there is some stuff in this movie that is just ha hachi machi distressing but i (laughs) i think i think it's perhaps where cronenberg if he was going to be and he has been accused of not being the best with female characters that this is is kind of uh an easy movie to point the misogynist finger at because it's it's almost like this woman is what disrupts their productive symbiotic relationship and um, sure. I, there's he always almost, this. He almost well, seems to be confronting that at the same time. Sure, mm-hmm. I'd I'd agree with that assessment, but I think it, it it's easy to pick it out of the film if that's where you're, you go in looking for yeah yeah and, if, if you're hunting for that then it's like okay well the french actress is you know the harpy that's that's come to tear him apart but i think like the the core thesis of the film is basically that their symbiotic relationship is incredibly toxic uh the, between the two brothers so the fact that she breaks that up is a good thing but they just they can't deal with it they're incapable of dealing with it 
Mm-hmm. Sure, I, I would agree with that 100%. It's just, uh, again, it, it's an easy thing to point to, especially this, this is a lot of objectification of women by the characters themselves, and this sort of one line that stuck out to me was when he is losing it uh, after uh, the gynecological exam we were just discussing, when he comes home and says, the instrument wasn't wrong, her body was wrong. It's, it's yeah. stuff like that, this whole sense of like foreign otherness surrounding women that I think that Cronenberg probably does feel to an extent, and he explores that and yeah. uh, makes it fascinating. But Yeah, and I think it's know. interesting, too, that... I mean, he almost, you know, tips his hand in the opening scene of the movie where you have the the two brothers as children and they're 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 talking about sex. You have these two like 8-year-olds or something and they're like, "Yeah, so, you know, when when fish have sex, they just release sperm into the water. So people have to have sex because we don't live in the water. If we did that, then we wouldn't fuck each other. We'd just, you know, squirt sperm into the water. <laughs> it's like, what? So it's just like the, literally the, the coldest, <laughs> most clinical way of viewing, like, right. intimacy with another human. And it's like, oh, okay, I, I, I see where it's going with these guys. And then it's interesting, too, because at the end, which, again, is incredibly difficult to watch, the two brothers, they, they basically, you know, they, they finally align again where they're both but mm-hmm. instead of being successful they're both just crippling drug addicts but they act like children you know they're they're eating cake and one of the brothers is like i want ice cream and the other one's like we didn't get any he's like oh but i want ice cream and <laughs> it's just, it's weird and then oh god what yeah, it's regressive when we, thing and then they yeah it's, just refer to themselves as chang and ang the original siamese twins yeah the whole thing the last 10 minutes of that movie good lord it, it it's worth the ride just for that. Holy shit. I, part of me want, like wants to see an entirely inappropriate, like David Zucker or Wayne's brothers, uh, version of this movie. What about, uh, what about stuck on you? You remember that one? <laughs> That's a good point. Well, Fairly brothers comedy. <laughs> I think the, my one major takeaway from stuck on you is it is like over two hours long. If I'm not mistaken, I just remember it going not, on. Forever. Yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> <laughs> oh. yeah, touche. That's my favorite. That, how about that for a movie. shotgun wedding? Um, <laughs> dead <laughs> dead ringers, great. and you pick stuck on you, and uh, and then you do the parent trap. That's that's it. Those are the three. There you go. <laughs> Jesus Christ, <laughs> that would be torture. I don't know how someone would it's do like, that. That's like Optimus a vaccine in a nutshell. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I think yeah. If, if you're gonna sum up three movies for one podcast that would exemplify <laughs> us, that's it. There you go. Uh, okay, let's dive into our final movie because, uh, you know, I watched this again with Myros probably a decade ago, and I, I sort of felt the same way about it as I felt about The Dead Zone at, at the time, where I was just like, you know what, this is, this is fine, there's some good stuff here, but, uh, you know, not great. And this time, unlike The Dead Zone, where I'm still just kind of like, eh, I fucking hate this movie. <laughs> Let's talk about existence. Well, okay. Oh, Jesus. This will be interesting. So we should preface that your opinions are probably, uh, and t- tell me if I'm wrong, but steeped in, um, you know, in informed sensibility about video games. Yeah, that's, that's part of it. Um, and the other part is even, even if I was, you know, from the the jungles of Cambodia or something, and I, 
I've just been living without electricity for my entire life, and then I watch this movie, I would still think it was fucking idiotic. <laughs> my main question about this movie is, why isn't it like a part of the Dude Bro Classics collection? Like, this is oh, like tailor-made for like the 90s... Uh, Dude, bro, huh. college guy going like, oh, twisteroo. Here's another. I don't think there's enough. There's not enough techno music for that. Yeah, yeah. That's that's all that separates it from. I think from the dude, bro, classics collection. It gets a little too heady at times, mm-hmm. and, and that's probably what keeps it from the dude bros. But it, it's totally one of those movies where it's just like some guy on a couch just smoking a joint, going, "Yeah, it's like you know, like what's real? Like, is this real?" Like, I don't know. Go fuck yourself. Jesus Christ. So, for those, again, who have not seen this, this is a movie about someone who develops a video game, and in Cronenberg future, video games are these uh, disgusting, like, living things. They're actually, like, organisms, and you plug them directly into your body, and then you get to experience another world. So imagine virtual reality, except uh, you're instead of a PS4, you had like a a fucking fetus and yeah, uh, <laughs> like a uterus and an umbilical cord. That yeah, basically, into a, instead of a PS, an asshole in your spine. Yep, that's 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 pretty much it. There you go. Uh, <laughs> uh, it seems to it seemed to me like it was. Uh, so this is you know my first time seeing it. Obviously, um, it seemed like. If in 1999 you had a David Cronenberg film generator, this is what would come out. Yeah, that's that's what it kind of feels like. Like if you if you go online and you and you search like Wu Tang Clan name generator and you type in your name and then it spits out what, what your name would be if you're in the Wu Tang Clan, it's like that except David Cronenberg. It checks yeah, all the but boxes. Very specific to 1999. You know what I mean? Like yeah. like in in the milieu of 1999, this is what Cronenberg movies are. Sure. And yeah, it's like, well, uh, non-traditional narrative, sure. Uh, body horror, yeah. Uh, intersection weird of guns. biology and technology, weird-ass guns, yeah. It has it has a lot of in common with Videodrome on the surface. If, you know, Videodrome was bludgeoned over the head repeatedly to the point where it couldn't think straight, that's what this movie is. Yeah. Well, it was the 90s, man. You had to have oh, this nasty narrative. My favorite thing about it is this is how 90s existence is. Well, aside from the fact that it's spelled lowercase e, capital X, and then there's a capital Z at the end. Uh, Why did they say that in the movie like six times, including after the big reveal that the product's name was something slightly different from that? But they yeah, what is it? It's not existence. It's like livenses or... <laughs> Don't fucking remember. All I know oh, is it also had a capital something. And a, it's and it's a, pilgrimage. Capital P, capital I. Yeah, that's that's it. Pilgrimage says I, I don't know what it is. It's stupid. I just as don't shit. understand. Like what what is he like? What is the point of that? Is it a joke? Is it like why do they keep reiterating that in in the script? I, I yeah. did not understand. It. I, I can't tell if he's taking the piss or not, and that's that's kind of a problem. <laughs> But yeah, uh, Jesus Christ. So yeah, it's sort of like if um, the Fifth Element uh, metabolized uh, Videodrome. Yeah, I've, uh, that's fair. But yeah, okay. So this this is the most '90s thing in existence, which I'm not going to say existence because I I can't like I can't do that to myself. Besides Wild and Crazy Kids, the the case that Jennifer Jason Lee carries around the existence game console in. It looks like a giant rollerblade. 
No, it's a ski boot. <laughs> is that what it is? Yeah, because they go to the ski shop. It's a ski boot. Holy man. shit, man. Oh, God. Just... <laughs> and there's there's so much that you could that you could do with this. Like, there are smart things that you could do with this movie. At, at its very best, if I had to explain this movie to a contemporary audience, I'd, I'd say, have you seen Inception? And they go, yeah. And whether or not you like Inception... It's just a really, really sloppy version of that, more or less. And and that's yeah. its big play is just like, oh, look at all these layers. What's real? What's in the game? Why is there a mutant it is not, fucking lizard? Uh, it's not slick at all. No. Yeah, I think that's the problem with the with its failure to enter Dude Bro Legacy program because it's it did come out the same year as The Matrix, and I think it. <laughs> I just don't think it had the same understanding of where the culture was headed like it's just it doesn't have that sort of slick action oriented vibe it still tries to be this cerebral thing while also instituting like a usual suspects puzzle box uh, narrative which is yeah it, it, it doesn't fully work i don't know have any great hate toward this movie i think it's got some very smart ideas in it yeah, I agree. Just, I, it also just has a lot of uh Ah, it's like it feels like Naked Lunch and uh, Videodrome kind of already both took care of this uh, territory for Cronenberg. It it feels like a total sort of rehashing of some of his better films. Yeah, so that's uh, that's how it works. It's basically like a shitty Videodrome pastiche, but just peppered with incredibly dated '90s references. uh, For either of you, but. I guess specifically you cuff like uh, with with like um, an interest in video games. Where do you wish this would have gone, or uh, what's like a tangent that was um, underdeveloped that you kind of wish it would have followed instead of just going to the like? Are we still in the video game? Yeah, I, I think I, I think it's in that sense. It's it's interesting because. We know that you can you can pause the game because they pause it at one point. Like they they shout out, oh, vi- you know, existence. I almost call it Videodrome. Existence pause, and then they pause <laughs> the game, and that's fine. Uh, and, and then they also get into this whole idea of you know you're in the game because you are being asked to perform things that you normally wouldn't do, and on top of that, people react only in specific ways when you interact with them. So people in video games they always talk about oh our game is so immersive it's so immersive it's like you're there it's like no you are when you're playing a video game you are always conscious that you are playing a video game you press x you get canned responses you you know you go back and forth and i think they could have done more to play around with that and i like that they acknowledge it and it's almost future looking in a way cuz i mean you know 1999 there's not a lot of you know big open dialogue driven games and they don't play around with that. And they don't play around with sort of the nature of virtual reality and how it changes our perception of how we interact in digital worlds. Like, they, they don't play around with it. It's all just, it's almost like lip service. It's all surface level. And, and basically, the whole thing is just, well, we, uh, you know, we have to uh, just figure out if we're in the game or not. Also, whatever the game is that she's designing is a super shitty game. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, what the fuck are they even fucking doing? It doesn't make any sense. What if? What if there? You know how uh, so many movies um, spurred uh, video game spinoffs. What if there was an existence video game? Oh, it'd be a hell of a video game. It's just like, 
oh yeah, do this mini game where you cut open salmon in the salmon factory for an hour. Like what? What the fuck is? It? Think about this as a video game. How did? How would this even function as? A I video think game? it would be you sitting down and like opening up a video game mm-hmm. in video game format. And playing a video game. Yeah, and that, okay, that so, does seem to be what happens. So then, it, so then it's like, okay, so if if we know that when you're playing a game, like there's there's rules that govern what you can and can't do, uh, and and your free will is sort of an illusion. Like you can only do so many things in a game. You only have X amount of choices, and existence doesn't really address that at all. They act like, oh, you can do whatever you want. No, you can't. There's fucking rules and restrictions. Except not, apparently. I don't know. But will there be in 50 years? Oh, Jesus. Probably. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. It's kind of hard to say. I mean, I, I do think the film had some progressive ideas about where video games have gone to. Mm-hmm. And uh, I I don't know. I, I kind of see your complaint about uh, the narrative of the video game itself as sort of a double-edged sword because... In one sense, in the actual video game, there the dialogue and choices are very naturalistic, and yet it's that secondary game within the game where it's sort of uh, you know positing this idea of the canned response and the prompts and what mm-hmm. have you. So it's almost like the base level of existence has done away with those. They've been it's evolved past those, and that only in this secondary game to kind of throw the player further into the spiral why that's necessary i'm not entirely certain uh but that's where you're kind of getting more cliched video game uh response and action npc nonsense but it's um i don't know i think it's a a clever script probably too clever by half it's almost like if you took total recall and then uh, assuming we go with the interpretation that Total Recall is in fact just Arnold's macho fantasy, mm-hmm. uh, that after uh, Arnold goes to Mars, that he immediately goes to another Total Recall station on Mars and enters a third level of recall. So and, it's a Solaris. <laughs> you know, so it's like, why Why would this happen? It doesn't really... <laughs> that's not something you would do in his fantasy, just yeah. enter another recall booth. <laughs> also, as far as I'm concerned... I would never drill a butthole into my spine, or and I, I would definitely not let Willem Dafoe drill a fucking butthole into my spine just to play a video. Oh game. man, I loved that uh, when the opening credits came on. It was like, and Willem Dafoe as gas. Yeah, that was <laughs> awesome. <laughs> well, I guess uh, not to derail the gas conversation. We can certainly get back to <laughs> Willem Dafoe's great turn as gas, but <laughs> you have to good. recognize. That in the base, the real version of reality that we only see in the last uh, five odd minutes of the film, sure, there actually is no fetus uh, umbilical butthole video game console. <laughs> it's more of a VR headset and hand waving thing. Yeah. Uh, so the the uh, the butthole is but a construct. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! I want to I want to isolate that audio clip and just play it all the time. <laughs> This movie has an awful lot of lubricating spine buttholes. Oh, yeah. Uh, Jude Law tongue jacks Jennifer Jason Lee's uh, video game butthole. It's it's quite gross. Spine? Yeah. (laughs) Um, Did you say that uh, Willem Dafoe fuels this film? He he really does. He might be my favorite part. The other thing that I like about it, too, and and this is... 
you know, I don't like this movie. I should make that clear. But there are a few like video gamey nods that kind of make me chuckle. Every single place they go to just is generically named place. It's just like the gassy gas station run by gas. <laughs> <laughs> and but like every building they go into is something like some twist on that, where it's just ultra generic name, and that's a very Which video an, game thing to do. It's a it's an odd choice. I mean, it is kind of fun, but it's an odd choice considering that we're never supposed to believe. I mean, we're supposed to at that point believe this is the real world, and yet every place they go to is called like gas station, ski shop, and. Right. There's like this two-headed lizard thing like running around. It's like what? It's pretty easy to guess what the twist is going to be because I'm like, yeah. why would there be a fucking two-headed lizard just running about? Because mm. they're already in the fucking video game. No. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one thing that I uh, appreciate about this movie is that every single poster available is the worst-looking thing I've ever seen. <laughs> And not withholding one that puts uh, Jude Law into a fetus. It's like the <laughs> Russian or some, some European poster that puts him into like this like cellophane fetus, mm-hmm. but like with Jude Law's head. I I can't really I can't get odd. past the font, the title font. Like if I was to find that font on the internet, it'd probably called be called like Sixth Grade Edge Lord or something. It's fucking horrible. <laughs> Yeah. Oh God! <laughs> Jesus Christ! I think the even worse looking than any poster is Jennifer Jason Lee's hairdo in the in the base portion of the game. Yeah. Hey man, yeah. she's got that like half crimped, half straightened. Yeah. <laughs> hey Jude Law, hell a, was that ever popular? <laughs> Jude Law is a handsome boy in that movie, though. Come on, he's a handsome yep. boy. <laughs> right before he went bald, he was still in the prime of life. Yeah. Oh. One thing uh, about this movie, I thought forever that it was Jude Law. Uh, what? <laughs> I don't know. The poster, uh, I, it always looked like Jude Law to me. And then, um, and who is it? Or, or, I mean, not Jude Law. Sorry. <laughs> it's sorry. like, what are you sorry. talking about? Uh, yes. I, am yes, I am right. I inside you the were... game? Am I in the <laughs> game? <laughs> is it Jude Law? No. Um, uh, Ewan McGregor. I thought it was Ewan McGregor forever. And then oh. it wasn't until I sat down to watch it that uh, it was. I, w- I was telling Sophie that, uh, oh, yeah, it's got Ewan McGregor. And she's like, oh, okay. Now, then, he, uh, isn't he in some other shitbox dystopian movie? Probably. I mean, yeah, I think so. It, it seemed like he was in a lot of those techno thrillers. Yeah. Maybe he was in, like, what's that? I feel like if it was Ewan McGregor, I'd have Cuff's opinion of the film because I <laughs> fucking hate that guy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, what is like? What are he had to have been in like something besides like I guess the island. I don't know. Who knows? Uh, all right. So, final thoughts on the second half of David Cronenberg's career, Sean Glynnis. What What do you think? What do you think about this journey you just went on? Oh, you know, I was thinking about this uh, in terms of them like segmented this way, and I was expecting. The second, you know, the first half was like super interesting but flawed, mm-hmm. and I was expecting the second one to be like a couple home runs and a couple interesting things. Uh, so sort of like basically outweighing the first half, but I don't, I don't know if that's how I feel. Um, I kind of feel a little bit even. Like uh, the fly is definitely the best, and I think Dead Ringers is something that that I'll appreciate more. Uh, if I see it again, if I ever feel like watching that again, <laughs> uh, 
but but that's definitely one where, where I don't like discount that because uh, it definitely has some ideas that I think are admirable. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't walk away from it being like, oh yeah, that was like you know a great experience. Um, mm-hmm. And then existence is just kind of silly to me and ugly. Like it, it it's a really ugly movie. It's quite hideous. Uh, yeah. And Dead Zone, I thought was the most boring of all eight. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. Uh, it's it's a it's a tough tough choice to uh, to say this was a better haul than the, than the first half. Yeah. Uh, but at least, at least you didn't have to watch it. Rabbit again. Think of it that way. And you know what? It was it's all about the journey. <laughs> it's all about the journey, not the destination. All right. Well, we'll do a part three where you just watch Spider four times uh, and then end Butterfly. Oh boy. Oh lord. Okay. Uh I I'd, I'd say that we pretty much we nailed it, man. We uh we covered everything we need to cover. Sean, are you putting over something this week? Oh god. Yeah, you didn't uh, think about that, did you, you dummy? <laughs> you, what do you think you're inside the game yeah, now? You just start to put things over? <laughs> are you going to put over gamer? Put over the last episode. No, I'm going to put over um Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, uh, the CW show, which uh, just came back for a second season, which I haven't started yet, but the first season, which is on Netflix, if you haven't watched it, is terrific. It's, uh, what is that, like a musical or something? It's a sort of a sitcom with musical stuff in it. Like I think it plays up the sick, or I think it plays up the musical stuff just for like genre classification more than it actually is. Mm-hmm. It has uh, probably like probably three minutes or so of, of musical in, in every forty-five minute episode, but. Um, it's uh, but the musical segments are often very bright uh, and and well conceived. Mm-hmm. All right, fair enough. Myros, what are you putting over? Uh, yeah, I'll put over that new season of Black Mirror Netflix just funded. Uh, the second episode, very reminiscent of a certain film called Existence, <laughs> except it's uh, less shitty. Maybe that's just because it's shorter. That could be it. What do you like? What What do you like better? Uh, the new Black Mirror uh, episodes or Swordfish? Uh, I'm going to go Swordfish. What? <laughs> you, you, like, you, you just like topless Halle Berry. Uh, <laughs> no comment. We need to do, uh, speaking of existence and now Swordfish, we need to do some weird like turn-of-the-century techno-thriller gobbledygook oh, stuff. That would, that would be interesting. I'm on board for that one. All right. I think uh, I, I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to put over that Dead Ringers Blu-ray, man. It's dynamite. It's got cool special features. It looks incredible. It sounds incredible. Um, it, I cannot recommend it enough. So, yeah, check that out. All right. And if you are listening right now, what are you doing? Go to our iTunes page. Make sure you rate us and review us because the more five-star reviews we get, the more dogs barking in the background we have. <laughs> Because we can, true. we can start our puppy mill that we've been saving money for. <laughs> also, it helps our visibility, helps more people listen to the podcast. <laughs> Damn it, Myros. We, we haven't started the Patreon yet for the puppy mill. You can't just have dogs running around. Um, also, make sure you go to optimismvaccine.com. Check out all the cool stuff we have. It's Canucksploitation Month. That's why we're doing the Cronenberg stuff at Optimism Vaccine. So you can check out Sean's article on Canadian music that just came out today. Jake had a great article on Canucksploitation and Canadian horror. You can check out all kinds of good stuff. And, uh, yeah, that pretty much sums it up. Uh, you can go, blah, 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 I, I can't talk. I'm sorry. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at Steve Cuff. Adam Myros doesn't have Twitter. He just has a Victor Salvo 
costume. Sean is <laughs> at Mr. Glynis, and we are at Optimism Vaccine. If you just want to tweet us there, you can also send us an email, optimismvaccine at gmail.com. Uh, if you guys have any requests for things you want us to talk about, if you have any comments, um, you know, if you want to tell Sean that he's a dummy because he doesn't like the dead zone and Stephen King is a golden god or something, that's fine. You can do that. Call him an idiot. All right. Uh, any last words, gentlemen? Yeah, you should probably tell, uh, you know, go on down to your local Chinese restaurant. Order the special. Oh, God. Yeah, order the special. <laughs> you just might get yourself a tooth gun. Mm-hmm.